0: We mentioned at uh, the end of the last segment that we're going to take a look at the potential for election 2020 and how there's there's no room for complacency at at the moment. We've talked a lot on this show about some of the mysteries of the election in 2016. And at this point, we will bring on someone who's explored that same matter and in greater depth, I might add, than what, what we have done. This would be researcher... Pat Spear. We might refer to him as a former music industry professional and currently a citizen researcher. Pat, welcome.
1: Oh, thank you, Doug.
0: We should point out to people you and I crossed paths years ago related to the JFK matter, and we would encourage listeners to want to know more about your take on it, and I think they should, to go to patspear.com. Very good. All right, well, but today we're going to talk about something else. You told me recently If you could Google Obama Nation, Abomination, it would pull up your lengthy piece on the 2016 election. Have I got that right?
1: Uh, From Obama Nation to Abomination. I was very proud of that title when I came up with it. It, I've seen other people have used it since, but I think I was the first one to put those words in that order.
0: I'm sure you've looked at the polls right now, and you've probably been hearing people talk about how Biden's ahead in places like Texas, or he's dead even, maybe even a little ahead. Places like Georgia, places like Arizona, the Rust Belt states where uh, which which all went to Trump are now looking, you know, very doable for Biden. But I think that it's worth our while to to look back at 2016, and I'm going to use your analysis on this uh, to show people how stack the deck is in the Electoral College against liberals slash Democrats.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's currently that way. I think that at some point in time, Republicans are going to say we got to get rid of the Electoral College because it's hurting them. Because, I mean, if you looked at the numbers which you have on my website, you see that certain states, the Dakotas and places like that, where Trump won in a landslide, they were, like, immediately, you know, they, they, those, those electoral college uh, votes were basically lost because he barely lost in New Hampshire. Right. And, and uh, so, they, they, you know, I think, I think eventually the Republicans will keep a light of day and say, we need to get rid of this thing because it just rewards, ultimately it rewards medium to large-sized states that are uh, battleground states. They get all the attention and all the state, little states that favor one candidate are completely ignored and ironically large states that favor one candidate are largely ignored. So we basically only about a third of the country is ever really part of the part of the process. So in order to make this a more democratic nation, I think we need to have the whole country involved and not just, you know, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Florida, Texas. The electoral college is a disaster.
0: Oh, no doubt. As you and I both being out here in California know that the elections don't come out here. It's like California is now a sure state to go blue. And so uh, there's there's not a lot of uh, electionizing. I don't know what word I'm looking for, but uh, Ohio is getting all the attention. Florida, swing states. There's not a lot
1: of campaigning that goes on in California. And it's ironic, you know, California should be the big prize. and yet, I don't even know the last election where the candidates spent any time out here. They just they show up for the primaries, and then after that, we never see them again. Trump was so irritated about losing the election so widely in California, even though he has property here and family here, he's only visited the state, what, three times as president? It's been maybe a total of like six days in California in three years.
0: Well, as you pointed out, he was so thoroughly thumped in California in the voting uh, in the voting that, you know, I he's, he's probably still bar- harboring a grudge.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, one of the stats which I came across when I was doing all this crunching, like a lot of people, I was like dismayed when he won the election. I was trying to figure out what happened. So first I crunched the numbers and looked at like, um, you know, state by state, like, uh, it, of course, the numbers kept changing, so I kept having to rewrite what I was doing, because they kept, like, adding more, uh, you know, mail-in votes and stuff, and then uh, then later on, I, I, I decided to look more of a cultural basis, but the original numbers that I was crunching, you know, just didn't, were very disturbing, and it, one of the things was there were so many news articles about, like, well, those darn liberals, they thought Hillary was going to win, and look what happened. And that's because there's a cultural revolution going on here, and people are behind Trump or whatever. They were trying to make it out like he was at the crest of this big wave and that he was a populist and everybody was supporting him. But the more I looked at it, he lost by three million votes. This was, he, did, he did worse than, you know, a lot, a lot of people that you say, oh, they got their butt kicked. It was, it was comparable to when Reagan beat Carter as far as the overall vote. Right, He did not do well, but because of the electoral college and some of the, you know, fishy, and let's say the luck factor of barely winning Florida and barely winning Pennsylvania and barely winning Michigan, because of this, you know, it, it created this illusion that he had a decisive victory when he actually had a significant loss.
0: Let's go over a little bit of that from using your, uh, from abomination to abomination. You note that if you take the the thirds, you divide the electoral votes into into thirds, and the basically, four states comprise one-third the U.S. population. And then the, the second third would, well, by your tally, comes up to, you know, something like uh, uh, 11. And then all the rest, all the rest of the states in D.C. comprise the final third. Going through this, the first third, Clinton won two states, Trump won two states. Uh, she came out with a lead 14 delegates electoral college but she was up 5.1 million votes in the actual vote count in the second third you did the tally on that and showed that um, by this point in time she is beaten them by an additional 2.1 million so by this point that puts her 7.2 million votes ahead taking into account two-thirds of the U.S. population and yet electoral college she's down nine delegates
1: exactly turned out, well, I think it was in Michigan, they couldn't even do a p- proper recount. And so these uh, questionable you know, votes in Michigan and Pennsylvania and Florida, they were the deciding factor in the election. So all, you know, this whole red wave, or whatever people want to call it, that took place across the Dakotas and Montana and Wyoming, that was all meaningless. It really didn't make a difference. The real difference was three or four battleground states, which somehow Trump won, even though a lot of times the polling showed he was not going to win.
0: Well, yes, and you went into some detail on that, which we should talk about. Uh, you you talked about the six states that have that are underrepresented in the Electoral College. They should have more based on their population, but by, by how it's how it's necessarily divided, they don't. Clinton wins all six of the ones that are underrepresented. Well, you took a look at states that were overrepresented, and it turns out eight of the eight or nine of those went to Trump. So again, it's like it's it's like, is he just lucky, or is this just incredibly? Manipulable, or both.
1: The closer I looked at it, the kind of, in a lot of ways, the smellier it became. Like, I took a look at one point at states that were considered battleground states, right? And I found that there was only one state that was a battleground state that had a Republican governor that Clinton won, and it was considered to be a close state. And that was Maine, and she was up by like eight points, and she only won by like one. So, although we would like to believe that you know our elections are completely clear of political influence. I think that the who counts the votes, whoever's running the state, has a way of influencing the vote. And I think I think it's a dirty secret that probably all the politicians know. Everybody knows what in Florida had happened in you know 2000 that having the you know Bush's brother be the governor was the deciding factor there. But I think it's a deciding factor in a lot of these states. I have a feeling that I I wouldn't be surprised you know like. Sometimes things take a long time to come out, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if 50 years from now people are looking back going like, oh my God, the elections back then were so corrupt and they were all, you know, the governors had all this control over how the votes were counted and all these overvotes and these undervotes. And it was because it's a statistical anomaly, anomaly that ha- having a Republican or Democratic governor can be the deciding factor in, when, a, you know, when a, uh, the polling is showing that the votes between you know 2% to 3% the difference
0: between the candidates. Let's take a look at this polling data. This, you, you, you note that Clinton won 15 of the 26 races that, they, that at least 538.com and others predicted she'd win by larger margins than predicted. Three were within 1.5% of predicted, but there were eight races when she was predicted to win, which she did noticeably worse out of those 26. And it should be noted that all eight were among the 12 closest battleground states. She lost all of them. Right.
1: Wisconsin, I remember, was Wisconsin, which she should have been out of reach. You know, at the last second, somehow, it's like, what?
0: Yeah, she was up four you know? points.
1: And I, That's right. In my article, I went back and I compared, I think, all the way back to the 2000 election to see, like, the largest, you know, uh, jump between polling and actual results. And I think there was only, like, one state in, over the last, like, you know, five elections or whatever— that he came close to like six states in this one. I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was yes, yeah, it was just like way too, way more jumps. And it wasn't that the polls were wrong across the country. It was that the polls, you know, um, were wrong in individual states that Trump needed to win. He desperately needed to win Pennsylvania, and somehow all oh, the polling had to being wrong. And if, I don't, people don't remember today, but he had no ground game.
0: I'm with you. Let's cut to the chase. The numbers don't add up. Is it is it not reasonable to assume that the election was corrupt?
1: Yeah, and you know, part of it's you know, I, I admit at the beginning of my article that I have a bias against Trump. But the more I thought about it, this is a guy who ran a casino empire. I mean, it's you know although it's on paper they didn't uh, they didn't make a lot of money i'm sure that you know we, that's the great thing about casinos as anybody <laughs> who studied them knows is that a lot of the people who like run these failing casinos become billionaires because there's ways to play with the numbers anyhow similarly the way a casino makes money is off a machine that is rigged so when trump complains about things being rigged he's an expert on rigging that's what his business was for you know most of his adult life rigging things and so it's, it just seems to me that, you know, this is a man who doesn't seem interested in democracy, seems interested only in winning. First, I looked at the numbers and they didn't add up. And then I looked at his personality and said, wait a second here. So I don't know what, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if 50 years from now, you know, people are looking at it going, uh, yeah, that election was... Baloney,
0: baloney. Well, we, let's hope let's hope we don't have two of them. This is my great concern. Right? Yeah, two. We're hoping to bring Greg Pallas back on, who's been an expert on how it is they suppress votes. Uh, there's there's still the reverberating issue of RussiaGate. What was done through Facebook, Cambridge Analytica. Uh, Brad Parscale said, you know, I elected Trump through Facebook, and you know how how he did this and how we can prevent it again. I think is on the front burner between now and November. Yeah, I mean
1: that is that is true. They did. They had a very active Facebook presence, which helped Trump get elected, even though they had, like, a no ground game. Like, recently, where I live, I could tell that the Republican candidate was going to win because all the streets, you know, you drove down the streets, you'd see in the yard, you'd see a Mike Garcia sign, right? Okay. And so you knew that there was a lot of active supporters for this guy out there. But in the last election... Trump's people, okay. his campaign was so lame, they didn't even get street signs out. They didn't get any of the traditional stuff out. They just used Facebook. Mm-hmm. And as we know now, that Facebook, you know, that uh, there was some fishy stuff going on between the information they were putting on Facebook and coordinating, uh-huh. you know, uh, different people. So is it going to be that way again, where the Trump is just going to ignore traditional campaigning and just try to just use the Internet to, like, brainwash people, basically? <laughs> Propaganda? I don't know. I just very much likes propaganda, you know, based upon his behavior. You know, part of the propaganda is that you just repeat things over and over again, and then people mm-hmm. seem to think there must be some truth to it, you know. And uh, that seems to be his game about, you know, Obama, Obama and Biden being criminals who spied on him, rather than, you know, all the people that work with him who've been convicted of crimes. You know, he keeps the focus on the other guys. But yeah, I'm getting off on a tangent. I think more importantly, right now is to look at just the basic numbers of the last election do not add up, and this presentation of Trump as a winner, as he likes you know to be, was, was false. One of the things I came across which you read, was that uh, he had the second worst performance in his home state of any candidate in history, <laughs> and he had the second worst uh-huh. performance in the largest state of any candidate in history. And this man goes around selling himself as a winner. You know, and um, I, I just I just don't see it. You know, I, I, as you could tell.
0: Well, we have we have four months till November election. As citizen researcher that you are, I'm sure you'll spend some time taking a look at what we need to fear the most between now and election day. Why don't you come back in a, in a month or two and, and tell us what you're thinking at that point? Because we're gonna we're gonna stay on this like white on rice. I think we I think we have to.
1: Yeah, I, I, that's after looking at all this, I, I felt like you know. I kind of felt like it was my duty as a citizen. You know, my website that I have is mostly about the Kennedy assassination, but I felt like I need to put this up where you know people can read it. And every now and then, I'll get a email from a college professor or someone saying I actually made it through your website, your article, and like you know, thanks or whatever. It, it, it just has to be out there. People have to know. You uh, know, anything we can do to like let people know that there is something going on here, and you know that we have to we have to let them know.
0: I'm sure listeners are going to want to go pull up from abomination to abomination. I, I encourage them to do so. You put a lot of work into that and a lot of data, and uh, I think I think we need to uh, to revisit it in terms of like, okay, it's bad, it's really bad. Now, what do we do?
1: Correct. Realize that, that there's something going on. You, you're obligated to do something about it. And uh, I think the country is in the mood to do that. I mean, I saw a lot of people marching for Black Lives. You know, Black Lives Matter that wouldn't that normally didn't march. They were just like, we need to, you know, say that this is wrong, and it's not just the, uh, it's it's not just one bad cop. It's right. just a, it's a it's a mode of behavior that seems to be, you know, in 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 most police departments, and it needs to be addressed. And uh, so hopefully, you know, people can get just as active about the upcoming election and protect it.
0: Well, we're going to do our part, and I'm I'm sure you will be willing to come back and help us do that. Pat Spear, thanks for speaking with us.
1: Oh, you're very welcome, Doug.
0: All right, in the 10 minutes or so we have left on the program, I would like to quote from an article which was brought to my attention through Facebook by the immortal Peter Dale Scott, a piece in The Nation magazine by Alfred McCoy titled, America's Drug War is Ruining the World. The sub-headline is, A Half-Century of Washington's Harsh Drug Prohibition Policies Has Brought Misery to Millions Across the Globe. This is worth quoting from. I do want to note that it was my great pleasure to have been able to interview Alfred McCoy as part of a panel over at Insight when I was at Capital Public Radio. When the producer, Benjamin Jonas, mentioned to me that uh, among the guests we were having on the following show was going to be Alfred McCoy, I said, Alfred McCoy of The Politics of Heroin in Southeast Asia... Pause. (laughs) Benjamin read down, yes, that's a classic I countered with. It was and is. It came out in something like 1972 and talked about how a lot of what was going on regarding the Vietnam War had a hidden agenda involving drugs. When McCoy first talked about this stuff, it was poo-pooed. But to quote from this latest worthy effort, for more than a century, the U.S. has worked through the U.N., and its predecessor, the League of Nations, to build a harsh global drug prohibition regime grounded in draconian laws, enforced by pervasive policing, and punished with mass incarceration. For the past half century, the United States has also waged its own, quote, war on drugs, unquote, that has complicated its foreign policy, compromised its electoral democracy, and contributed to social inequality. Perhaps the time has finally come to assess the damage the drug war has caused and consider alternatives. Even though I made my first mark with a 1972 book that the CIA tried to suppress on the heroin trade in Southeast Asia, it's taken me most of my life to grasp all the complex ways this country's drug war, from Afghanistan to Colombia, the Mexican border to inner-city Chicago, has shaped American society. Last summer, a French director during a documentary interviewed me for seven hours about the history of illicit narcotics. As we moved from the 17th century to the present and from Asia to America, I find myself trying to answer the same relentless question. What has 50 years of observation actually drilled into me beyond some random facts about the character of the illicit traffic in drugs? Said McCoy, at the broadest level, the past half century turns out to have taught me that drugs aren't just drugs, drug dealers aren't just pushers, and drug users aren't just junkies. Illicit drugs are major global commodities that continue to influence U.S. politics, both nationally and internationally. And our drug wars create profitable, covert netherworlds in which those very drugs flourish and become even more profitable. The U.N. once estimated the transnational traffic, which supplied drugs to 4% of the world's adult population, was a $400 billion industry, the equivalent of 8% of global trade. Said McCoy, during my process of reflection, I returned to three conversations I had back in 1971 when I was a 26-year-old graduate student researching that first book of mine. The Politics of Heroin, CIA Complicity in the Global Drug Trade. In the course of an 18-month odyssey around the globe, I met three men deeply involved in the drug wars whose words I was then too young to fully absorb. The first was Lucian Coneen, a legendary CIA operative whose covert career ranged from parachuting in North Vietnam in 1945 to train communist guerrillas with Ho Chi Minh to organizing the CIA coup that killed South Vietnamese President Ngo Dindim in 1963. In the course of our interview, he laid out just how the agency's operatives, like so many Corsican gangsters, practiced the clandestine arts of conducting complex operations beyond the bounds of civil society and how such arts were, in fact, the heart and soul of both covert operations and the drug trade. And Lucian Conin is a guy we could have a, uh, a whole show about one day though we probably will not, said McCoy. Second came Colonel Roger Tringir, whose life in a French drug netherworld extended from commanding paratroopers in the opium-growing highlands of Vietnam during the First Indochina War to serving as Deputy to De General Jacques Massou in his campaign of murder and torture in the Battle of Algiers in 1957. Tringier explained to me how he helped fund his own paratroop operations through Indochina's illicit opium traffic. Emerging from that interview, I felt almost overwhelmed by the aura of Nietzschean omnipotence that Trinquere had clearly gained from his many years in this shadowy realm of drugs and death. My last mentor on drugs was Tom Tripodi, a covert operative who trained Cuban exiles in Florida for the 1961 Bay of Pigs invasion, and then in the late 70s penetrated mafia networks in Sicily for the USDA. Looking back, says McCoy, I can now see how these veteran operatives were describing to me a clandestine political domain, a covert netherworld in which government agents, military men, and drug traders were freed from the shackles of civil society and empowered to form secret armies, overthrow governments, and even perhaps kill a foreign president. Skipping ahead, the influence of illicit drugs on U.S. foreign policy was evident between 1979 And now, in the abysmal failure of its never-ending wars in Afghanistan. In 2000, when the Taliban banned opium in a bid for diplomatic recognition and cut production to just 185 tons, the rural economy imploded and the regime collapsed. To say the least, the U.S. invasion and occupation of 2001 to 2002 failed to effectively deal with the drug situation in the country, The CIA mobilized the Northern Alliance, which had long dominated the drug trade in northeastern Afghanistan. Even though output surged in the first three years of U.S. occupation, Washington remained uninterested in that, resisting anything that might weaken military operations against Taliban guerrillas. Testifying to this policy's failure, the U.N.'s Afghan Opium Survey in 2007 reported the harvest that year reached a record... 8,200 tons, generating 53% of the country's gross domestic product, and accounting for 93% of the world's illicit narcotics. And oh, I wish I had time to read most of this article, but I do not. Citing recent history in Afghanistan, McCoy says, instead of reducing the traffic, the drug war has actually helped stimulate that nine-fold increase in global opium production and, and parallel surge in U.S. heroin users. From 68,000 in 1970 to 886,000 in 2017. By attacking supply and failing to treat demand, the U.S. slash U.N. war has been pursuing a solution to drugs that defies the immutable law of supply and demand. As a result, Washington's drug war has in the past 50 years gone from defeat to debacle. Skipping ahead. For the previous 50 years, the U.S. prison population remained remarkably stable at 110 prisoners per 100,000 people. Our new drug war, however, almost doubled those prisoners, from 370,000 in 1981 to 713,000 in 1989. Driven by Reagan-era drug laws and parallel state legislation, prison inmates soared to 2.3 million by 2008. Raising the country's incarceration rate to an extraordinary 751 prisoners per 100,000. And 51% of those in federal penitentiaries are there for drug offenses. Says so McCoy, so successful were Reagan Republicans in framing this partisan drug policy as a moral imperative, the two of his liberal Democratic successors, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, avoided any serious reform of it. Instead of systemic change, Obama offered clemency to about 1,700 convicts an insignificant handful. But he does end on an optimistic note referring to the end of drug prohibition, said Alfred McCoy. On the other side of history's ledger, the harm reduction movement led by medical practitioners and community activists worldwide is slowly working to unravel the global prohibition regime. By 2018, Oklahoma became the 30th state to legalize medical cannabis. After initiatives by Colorado and Washington in 2012, eight more states have decriminalized the recreational use of cannabis, long the most widespread of illicit drugs. In 2001, Portugal decriminalized the possession of all illegal drugs, replacing incarceration with counseling and producing a sustained drop in HIV and hepatitis infections. Projecting this experience into the future, It seems seems likely that harm reduction measures will be adopted progressively at local and national levels around the globe, as various endless and unsuccessful wars on drugs are curtailed or abandoned. Well, we hope so, Professor McCoy. We think that's going to take an aroused public when you factor in who is profiting from the current situation and why they're bound to be happy with keeping things just the way they are. Some years back, Mr. Lynn and I attended a lecture from the late Michael Rupert about the international drug trade that was, I think, pretty spot on and explained how illicit drugs, intelligence agencies, and Wall Street bankers were kind of in an unholy alliance. But, but I guess it, in the end it comes down to how we need a change in the status quo. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week.